Jeff Randolph, who's part of our uh, preaching team that we've uh, recently created here, is going to be sharing from Daniel chapter 2. So please welcome Jeff this morning. Good morning, everybody. I'm going to dive right in here. We're continuing with the book of Daniel. We made it through chapter 1, and now I'm going to start reading from Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb. And your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious, and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied, with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of kings so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So Daniel and the wise men in Babylon are in trouble, they're in big trouble, because somebody with a great deal of power and a great deal of authority wants to kill them. And like Pastor Bill was saying last week, it's not like Daniel has the right to a fair and speedy trial here. He doesn't have the right to an attorney, he doesn't have the right to speak in his own defense. If Nebuchadnezzar wants him dead, he has the right to die. There's the extent of Daniel's civil rights. 
And Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't even have to, like, resort to any political scheme to cover it up, right? He would just be able to do it all openly and publicly for everyone to see. So Daniel is in a really horrifying situation. And yet, when Ariok comes to tell him about it, we're told that Daniel replies with prudence and discretion. Now, how is he able to maintain himself under such tremendous pressure? He doesn't panic. He doesn't lose his head. And he has the wherewithal to negotiate for some time with the king. Where does his character come from? The short answer to that question, I suppose, is the grace of God. The short answer is a good answer. But what do we mean by that? I want to explore a little bit with you. Do we mean that Daniel was just a spineless coward right up until the second Arioch told him the plan, Nebuchadnezzar wants you dead, and then miraculously and instantaneously God gave Daniel a burst of courage out of nowhere. Now, obviously, this is within the scope of omnipotence, and I'm not trying to deny that. An all-powerful God could do that. My question is, did Daniel have some preparation, though? And I would argue he did. You know, a slogan you hear in church fairly often is, God doesn't, let me see if, I hope I get this right. God doesn't uh, call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And I I think there's truth in those words, and I've experienced in my own life, I've experienced the truth of those words. We do need to be careful, though, not to take that to mean that God never does anything to prepare people for the ministries He calls them to. So, for example, sometimes pastors, when they're trying to encourage their congregation, they'll take somebody out of the Bible like Moses. And then they will marshal out every single fault and failing associated with Moses. And the idea is they don't want their hearers to be discouraged by their own deficiencies from answering God's call, right? Which is commendable. But if we take that to mean, well, Moses was a murderer. He had difficult speaking in public. He had confidence issues. He was just totally incompetent and unprepared for what God had called him to do. No. Think about where Moses was born. Well, he was born in Egypt, right? Not amazing, nearly every Hebrew, if not all Hebrews, were born in Egypt at the time. But where was he raised? He was raised in Pharaoh's own household. Now, that's very significant because that means that Moses would have been educated. He knew the traditions. He knew the culture. He had direct ties to the royal family. He got to see how Egypt was run from an insider's perspective. And that's where he was for 40 years before he fled. Now, was Moses perfect? I mean, did he have any weaknesses? Of course he did. But who besides Jesus Christ is perfect, right? I mean, the question is not was he perfect in every way, but was he fit? for what God had called him to do. And I would argue that he was fit. He wasn't just a completely illogical choice. Just to give you another quick example of Moses is not enough, let's look at King David. Did God just throw David into the ring with Goliath without any preparation and say, have at it, boy. Let's see what you can do. I want to read to you a passage. One of my favorite passages from the Bible. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 17. 
where Saul is talking to David about this. David is going to fight Goliath. And Saul, he's looking at David going, ah, yeah, maybe not, David. And here's what David says. Let me find the verse. Verse 32. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. The only word I can think to describe that is hardcore. All right, we have some guys in our church that are hunters. Like, is, is Ron Page or Matt Cropley here today? I mean, they fancy that they're hunters, right? I, I, wonder, I wonder how many of them would go up against a bear or lion without a loaded weapon. All right, because if I'm in David's situation and I've got my flock and a lion comes and snatches one of those sheep... I'm thinking, okay, my flock has been reduced by one lamb. Like, that's not the time to leave the 99 and go after the one, right? But David runs after the lamb. He snatches it out of the beast's mouth. And here's my favorite part, as if that's not enough. That the animal had the audacity to give David some attitude, he whooped up on it and killed it. So David, David didn't have formal military training. But uh, he was saying, Saul, you know, God had ordered his life in such a way that he was prepared for that moment. Now, we have to remember that Daniel and his friends are not strangers to hardship. It has not been many years since Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem, snatched them out of their homeland, drugged them in captivity to Babylon where they lost all their freedoms. And they probably saw a fair number of their countrymen slaughtered in the process. And David's just a boy, or sorry, Daniel. Daniel's just a boy. In fact, there's a beautiful psalm, Psalm 137, referring to the Babylonian exile that really captures for me the heartache that the people of, people of Israel experienced. Here's Psalm 137. I want to read just a portion of it to you this morning. By the waters of Babylon... There we sat down and wept. Now I'm going to cry. When we remembered Zion. On the willows there were hung up lyres. For there our captors required of us songs. And our tormentors mirth saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. There is so much heartache in those words and so much sadness and so much longing of the plight of a conquered people who are now living in a pagan land. And that had forged Daniel's character, I would argue. His character has been forged in the furnace of suffering. In James chapter 1... We're told, count it all joy when you experience trials of many kinds. In Romans chapter 5, Paul tells the Romans, we rejoice in our sufferings. 
Now that is a very counterintuitive response to trials and suffering, to respond with gladness and joy, but they tell us why. They don't leave their words a mystery. They say because this builds character. I once heard a science popularizer say he couldn't stomach the idea of a good God. And here's why he couldn't believe in a good God. He said, any good God is going to grant his creatures at least two things. He's going to give them good health and he's going to give them longevity. Any good parent is going to want his children to live a long time and to be healthy. God doesn't do this, therefore there's no good God. Now, if I was going to respond to this, first of all, I could say, God does guarantee us good health and longevity, eternal good health and longevity, and eternal blessedness on top of it, all right? But let's just leave that aside for a moment. Let's just say we're dealing with this present age, right, to be fair. First and foremost, what is our life in this present age? According to the scripture, it says our life in this present age is like a mist. There is no longevity. Our life in this present age is like a morning vapor that comes and vanishes without a trace. And it doesn't matter if you live to be 120 years old. You are a blade of grass that springs up and withers. So what are we talking about when we're talking about longevity in this present age? And secondly, what do we think God's trying to do? Is the world a terrarium where God is trying to raise human pets? And his goal is, well, I just want to keep my pets happy and I just want to protect them from trouble. Or is the earth a house where God is trying to raise sons and daughters? Now... So for the sake of transparency, do I, do I follow James and Paul when I experience suffering and trials? No, not usually. I don't, re- I don't rejoice. I complain. All right. And I pray for relief. That's my style. <laughs> but I will say this in defense of myself. Once some distance has been placed between me and my trials, not always, but oftentimes, once there's some distance, I can look back on it and I can say, I hated that. I don't ever want to go through that again, but it forced me to grow up. And suffering is tough. Suffering is tough, but it forces us to grow up because that's God's will, our sanctification. Who cares if you live a hundred years if you're as evil as Joseph Stalin? Is that a success because you were healthy and because you lived a hundred years? Obviously not. There are things that are more important. And so here Daniel is displaying his character that he has developed. But he also understands his character is not going to save him. And his virtue is not going to save him. Because in one respect, Daniel is on the same page as these Chaldeans. They both understand what the king has asked, no mortal man can do. Daniel knows that just as well as they do. So how does Daniel respond? Well, He prays. Let me pick up the story at verse 17 in Daniel chapter 2. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. 
This prayer is very interesting to me. It reveals a lot about Daniel's theology. The word that I want us to focus in on for a moment is the word mercy. So interesting. Now, has Daniel done something wrong? Because usually when we think of mercy, we think, oh, I messed up, I've done something wrong, and now I need forgiveness. But Daniel hasn't done anything wrong. And Daniel's companions have not done anything wrong. So where does that word come from? And I would say, this is Daniel recognizing that when everything is said and done, God decides the day on which we're going to be born. God decides the day on which we are going to die. And every day God gives us is a gift. We are not owed that. We, we think that way, don't we? We think, God, you owe it to me. And it would have been so easy for Daniel to say, God, you owe it to me. I was taken from Babylon. I saw my countrymen killed. You drugged me into this land, and now, God, you owe it to me to give me my life. And that's not Daniel's attitude. He just humbly says, God, you're God. You don't, you're not under any obligation to save me, but I'm going to ask for mercy. I'm going to ask for mercy. And what's also interesting about this is that even though Daniel respects the sovereignty of God in this sense, he's not a fatalist. He doesn't take this attitude, well, whatever happens is going to happen. There's nothing I can do about it. He doesn't treat God like an impersonal force that just kind of animates the universe, but you can't approach him. Everything is just a chain, chain of cause and effect. We don't have any power over it. He, he believes that prayer can make a difference. And I would encourage us, you know, every Christian says prayer can make a difference, but do we live that out? I want to work on a tangent just for a moment here, if you'll indulge me. When it comes to prayer. All right, we, we say that prayer matters, but do we live that out? You know, every time there's an election cycle, people are quick to say, if you don't go out and vote, if you don't exercise your civil liberties, then you don't have a right to complain about the results of the election, which makes sense, right? You didn't vote. You didn't participate. Why are you complaining? And everybody gets that. All right, well, suppose just hypothetically you were at a church that wasn't perfect. Suppose that you were at a church where there were some problems, right, with the leadership. And uh, you start complaining about the leadership. Here's a question. When's the last time you prayed for the leadership of your church? Are we going to get serious about this idea that the body of Christ needs to be fueled by prayer, or are we not? Is it too much to ask that we daily lift up the leaders of our church in prayer? I mean, look at them. They need it. Uh, and, uh, and you can pray for Craig and me too. We need it too, all right? Bring it, bring it, Pastor Bill. But if, if we're not praying for the leadership and lift, lifting it up and saying, God, be glorified through the leadership of this church, what right do we have to complain if things are going wrong? And I would offer none. We have no right to complain. We've got to, like and follow Daniel's lead here, believe in the power of prayer. And God answers Daniel's prayer. He grants him a revelation in a... John Lennox's book, Against the Flow, which is a commentary on Daniel, he points out that this idea of revelation is something that's very much dismissed by many a modern, educated person. This whole idea 
that God speaks and acts in human history. I was just listening to a testimony not that long ago, and you hear this story. It's so boring, but you hear it all the time. He's in college. He's sitting in class, and his college professor stands up and says, You know, if I told you all that God has spoken to me, what would you think? And the students respond, Oh, we would think you're crazy. That's, that's crazy talk. And so the implication is, well, we, we as Christians, we believe that God speaks and acts in human history, right? Now, that's true. That's true for me. Here's something interesting, though. Does that obligate me to believe everyone who claims that they have heard from God? Scripture is very, very clear on this point. It's not ambiguous. False prophets are all over the place. People who speak in God's name, who are putting words in God's mouth, and we're not obligated to believe them. We're perfectly within our rational rights to say, yeah, I believe in Revelation. Yes, I believe that God speaks and acts in human history. And no, I don't believe everyone who says they've heard from God. And some of them are crazy. And there's no logical inconsistency there, none whatsoever. And what's interesting is Nebuchadnezzar in this regard shows more sense than this enlightened, sophisticated college professor. Because he's not going to believe anybody who tells him about his dream. He, you know, as crazy as he is, he devises a really clever test. He says to his wise men, okay, you guys claim to have some connection with the divine. You claim that you're, you know, you and the gods are buddies. Well, now it's time to put up or shut up. I'm going to ask you to do something that only the gods can do, and then you can show me why you're on my payroll. And you can see he's really frustrated. If you can't do it, I'm going to tear you limb from limb. And fortunately for those wise men who were, uh, who were charlatans, and that's another thing that's interesting about this Daniel story. Daniel's not just saving himself. He, he's showing love to these guys. They're just charlatans. And fortunately for them, he does know the one true God. And so he comes before the king and he gives the interpretation. Now I'm going to jump to verse 31 here in Daniel chapter 2. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest of arms and silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image up on its feet of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. Notice it's not just the feet. Everything is ground to dust. The whole thing. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And I could just imagine what it would be like to be Nebuchadnezzar. And you're sitting there and this Judean exile has come before him. And he's telling him exactly the details of his dream. That would be a mind-bending experience. No way. Here is somebody who is actually connected 
And now Daniel has some currency when it comes to interpreting the dream. And so this is, this is the interpretation, the basic interpretation. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that the gold portion of the statue represents Babylon. And then each successive part of the statue represents different kingdoms and empires. Now, you may or may not be surprised Christians disagree about which empires are represented by which sections. But traditionally, the silver is usually taken to be a combination of the, of the Medo-Persian Empire, which is like a combination of two empires. The bronze section is Macedonia or Greece. And then the iron would be Rome. And you can see that the different portions of the statue have different values, different relative values and relative worth and relative strength. Like gold, presumably, is more valuable than the iron legs, but the iron legs would be stronger than the gold. So it's a very interesting apocalyptic vision. But rather than get into the details of it, what I want to do is just step back and think about what this statue represents. And what it represents is human empire and human achievement, right? That's the statue Nebuchadnezzar is looking at. Nowadays, people are so desperate, many of them, to find something they can put their trust in other than God. So people will put their trust in the government. Uh, Amazingly enough, I mean, read a history book, but uh, all right, good luck. Go ahead and put your trust in the government. Some people do. They think, oh, this political machine, we can turn this around. Uh, Some people put their trust in economics. Some people put their trust in humanism. But whatever secularist ideal or ideology you're looking at, there's always the same underlying assumption. And that underlying assumption is this. We don't need God. We can do it. If we just believe in ourselves. If you just believe in yourself. There's an interesting slogan, by the way. Is that a good idea? You hear it often enough. I want to read to you something G.K. Chesterton wrote about believing in yourself that I find very enlightening. This is from his book, Orthodoxy. He writes, Shall I tell you where the men are who believe most in themselves? For I can tell you. I know of men who believe in themselves more colossally than Napoleon or Caesar. I know where flames the fixed star of certainty and success. I can guide you to the thrones of the supermen. The men who really believe in themselves are all in lunatic asylums. Insane people believe in themselves. Now contrast that with what the prophet Jeremiah writes in chapter 9, verse 23. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the strong man boast in strength. Nor let the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So what are you going to put your trust in this morning? What are you going to put your confidence in? Are you going to put it in human wisdom? Are you going to put it in human wealth? Or are you going to put it in the stone that was uncut by human hands, that crashes into human history and grinds human arrogance into powder and wipes it into oblivion? Church, there is only one Lord. And there is only one everlasting kingdom. 
If you want to trust in something, trust in that. That's Daniel chapter 2. Let's pray. Holy Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you freely in this building this morning. We thank you for the gift of the scriptures and we ask for your mercy on our congregation, on our leadership, on everyone here. We pray that people would find the gifts that you've gifted them with through your Holy Spirit and that they would use those gifts to build your house and your kingdom. That you might be revealed to Ridgecrest and to all the ends of the earth. In Jesus' righteous name we pray. Amen.